to this very special edition of Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast where we talk about all things from the solo years and, of course, just occasionally things from the Beatles years as well. Um, as you can see, we are joined by some very special guests uh, today. And uh, as you can also see, we have uh, we're not live uh, tonight. <laughs> but for a very good reason. And uh, we are just so excited uh, for this, uh, this show tonight. I think it's going to be a great one. Uh, before we introduce our guests uh, tonight, um, I'm Kid O'Toole. You probably know me from my book, Songs We're Singing, Guided Tours to the Beatles' Lesser Known Tracks, Michael Jackson FAQ, All That's Left to Know About the King of Pop, and of the book I co-edited with our good friend Ken Womack, Fandom and the Beatles, the act you've known for all these years. And uh, let me introduce my good friends that I'm, I'm so lucky to uh, co-host this show with every other week. Uh, Tom Hanyati, who is the co-host of the very popular Two Legs, uh, a Paul McCartney-centric video cast and podcast. Uh, Joe Mayo, who is the host of the equally popular uh, YouTube uh, channel, Mean Mr. Mayo, which is about all things uh, collecting, uh, Beatles-centric mainly, but sometimes other things as well, uh, and uh, humor, uh, Fab Gab uh, show, which is about all things Beatles as well, and of course, last but definitely not least, uh, Ken Michaels, a mainstay in the Beatles community who also never sleeps uh, because he has so many shows. Um, Things We Said Today, who he co-hosts with, uh, among others, one of our guests today, um, as well as the long-running syndicated show, uh, Every Little Thing, where he plays just that, Every Little Thing from the Beatles and Solo Years. And if that weren't enough, in addition to this show, he also has his own YouTube channel where he interviews everybody from musicians to authors uh, to podcasters, video casters. You never know who will show up on his channel. So uh, so without further ado, let me introduce our very special guests. They are the authors of this incredible book that uh, everybody is still talking about, and for very good reason, The McCartney Legacy. And this is just volume one from 1969 to 1973. Um, and uh, 
I'll tell you, I'm just so excited to be talking about this this book today. I think we all are. Um, first, Alan Cozen, um, who really doesn't need an introduction. I think everybody knows who he is. He's a music critic and culture reporter for the New York Times uh, from 1977 to 2014. Does a, what a what a run uh, where. Uh, you wrote uh, he wrote principally about classical music, but was also basically the Beatles expert. Uh, now writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, uh, many other publications. We subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, and every time I see him, I'm like I know that guy, um, <laughs> and um, and has written for countless countless other publications. Um, and if that weren't enough. Uh, has written tons of books on the Beatles, such as uh, The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop, Got That Something, How the Beatles I Want to uh, Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything, um, and, uh, and countless other books. And last but definitely not least, once again, Adrian Sinclair, um, who is uh, the principal investigator uh, for the McCartney legacy. <laughs> I cannot wait to talk to you about that. My goodness, what what research went into this? Um, and uh, he has worked for pretty much every major broadcaster in the world, including BBC, ITV, Sky, uh, Channel Four, National Geographic, Discovery, uh, and MTV. Um, and as gained uh, recognition for his work with the Royal Television Society in England and uh, and his uh, 2010 documentary Stealing Shakespeare uh, was Emmy nominated for best documentary. I mean, I could go on and on uh, for all of their qualifications <laughs> for this book, and and we'd never we'd never get to the <laughs> to the questions. So I could say, say they were they are more than qualified to write this book. So Alan, Adrian, welcome to Talk More Talk. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us on. After that introduction, I think we're out of time now, aren't we? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I had to edit. I had to Thanks edit some of us, that yeah. down. <laughs> see, you, see you next time, guys. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, before uh, we get to uh, talking about this incredible book, uh, Ken, you have uh, some news for us. So uh, take it away. Well, no pun intended. <laughs> Since we just did a show one week ago, there hasn't been that much news, but um, I do have to mention the passing. Actually, the news broke while we did our last show, mm -hmm. uh, the passing of Louise Harrison, uh, George Harrison's sister, who died on January the 30th at the age of 91. Louise moved to the United States in the 50s, and her first husband was an engineer for a string of coal companies. They eventually ended up living in Benton, Illinois. And as many Beatle fans will know, George, along with his brother Peter, came to the U.S. in 1963 to visit their sister in Benton. And George actually jammed with a local band called the Four Vests. This was at the El Dorado VFW. And George also went to his first drive-in movie theater at that time, and he bought a Rickenbacker guitar while he was in town. Louise was always busy promoting the Beatles and trying to get local stations to play them. She got one radio station in Illinois to play their latest single at the time, From Me to You. And a few months later, the Beatles arrived in New York, played the Ed Sullivan Show, and then the group exploded in the U.S. and worldwide. And Louise released an album 
1964 on a small record label, Recar, R-E-C-A-R, Recar Records, based out of Minneapolis, called All About the Beatles. Louise had struggles with her personal life and her marriage ended in divorce. Um, she moved from Benton to Missouri at one point in Connecticut and eventually mm -hmm. landing in Florida. Louise uh, released her own autobiography in 2014, My Kid Brothers Band, a.k.a. The Beatles. And she also managed a Beatles uh, tribute band and a British invasion group, uh, Beatles Invasion Band, Liverpool Legends. She dialed while in an assisted living facility in Florida. George was the youngest of four children. George was. And he had the one sister, Louise, and two brothers, Peter and Harry. Harry is still alive. He's mm. 89 years old. And also, um, Louise was a guest at the Fest for Beatle fans. Many fans were delighted to meet her in person recently. Um, seems like in the past two weeks, we've had some major news stories concerning Paul McCartney. Following the news that there will be a book of photos taken by Paul from late 1963 and early 1964, the Beatles, called 1964 Eye of the Storm, coming out June the 13th. Two days ago, we heard that there'll be a documentary on Paul's life after the Beatles in the works to be called, at least this is the working title, Man on the Run. And Oscar-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville will be working on it. This will be a joint collaboration between Paul's company, MPL Communications, and Polygram Entertainment, the film and TV division of UMG, the Universal Music Group. This documentary will feature never-before-seen material and new interviews. It's being described as the definitive document of Paul's emergence from the dissolution of the world's biggest band, and his triumphant creation of a second decade of musical milestones, a brilliant and prolific stretch. Neville won an Oscar for the film, 20 Feet from Freedom, uh, Stardom, I'm sorry, 20 Feet from Stardom, and also worked on the documentary Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain, as well as the recent Tom Hanks film on Mr. Rogers, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Neville is a self-proclaimed Beatle fanatic and McCartney obsessive, and he says, I was too young to buy Beatle records when they came out, but I could buy Wings records and I loved them. To me, the story of what happened to Paul in the wake of the Beatles when he had to rediscover himself is the story that has never been told. And the quote. Apparently, um, <laughs> he hasn't read the book that we're about to discuss <laughs> yes. on the show. Or, or the book that, that the working title is for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's one thing I'm a little confused about, because in the last couple of years, we heard that there was a documentary in the works all yes. about Paul's solo career that was going to take you all the way up to his appearance in Glastonbury. Yep. So I don't know if this was the start of it. I don't know if this has anything to do with it. But it's interesting that this is a brand new project, apparently about I, just yeah. the first decade. I don't like. think so, because that was going to be done by Charlie Lightning, I think his name uh, his name mm. was. Okay. Um, yeah, the career-spanning documentary is, is, I think, the juicier of the, the two. To be honest with you, because yeah, I mean, with with Wingspan and and with uh, Tom's and with uh, uh, McCartney legacy and even even uh, Luca's book. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I just don't understand that quote from him. Is is this is an underexamined part of his story? I don't yeah. understand mm -hmm. that one bit. So, well, maybe more in depth is what. Well, we're not getting more in depth. 
than the book more deaf than the this new book. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's why I was saying that. But um, mm. yeah, there is something to be said about, you know, would you rather have a career spanning documentary where a lot of stuff is lightly touched upon? Or would you rather focus on one period where you can go more in depth? Yeah. So I, I think know. it would make a great film someday, a motion picture, you know, just that period, you know, the breakup with the Beatles and then reinventing himself and struggling and swarming the new band and then becoming, uh, you know, really like worldwide big again, matching it almost with right. the Beatles and culminating in maybe ending at the Wings Over America tour, mm. you know, just as a movie. Hmm. Well, they, the Amazon Prime, you can watch a, I think it was a five or six series episode series of the grateful dead and i think mccartney's you know more popular than or has more fans than them mm -hmm. I, I think i would love to see this and or the career spanning be a you know maybe a 10 episode you know series well it needs that much time yeah exactly yeah. definitely yeah but then again you know us hardcore fans kind of get pushed to the side sometimes when it comes to these projects yeah yeah and they're not thinking of us as much as the general right. public. Hmm. So that's it. As I said, it's a short newscast. Hey, <laughs> okay. all right. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ken. So, uh, so as I mentioned at the top, the uh, main topic of this uh, special episode, this bonus episode, is the McCartney legacy. And um, Adrian Allen, I, I just, uh, I, I, I am absolutely blown away by this book. I got so involved one night <laughs> reading this. I kid you not, I, I was reading it and then I looked at the clock and it was three in the morning. <laughs> wow and um and and it was okay i i i was tired the next day and i didn't care because it was <laughs> because it is was that absorbing i mean it, it uh you really did an amazing job it is just uh it, it is just so engrossing you you really captured such a multi-dimensional you know, picture of Paul and his artistic process, what he was going through, um, you know, after the breakup and, and really just, uh, you know, trying to build, re, you know, rebuild his career and, and trying to establish himself uh, as, as a new artist. And you, you really managed to tell his story um in a new way and, and really reveal his um as i said is his creative process so so bravo i i mm -hmm. just i love this book um we were aiming for <laughs> yeah well you did it <laughs> you you absolutely did it and um and so before we we get to uh you know questions we have about you know some some specifics i thought it might be good to just start out with though for those who haven't you know read the book yet may not know as much about the approach uh, that you took I thought maybe we should um, you know start with that and um, you mentioned um, in uh, well both of you mentioned in the book about how you came up with the concept and uh, and I believe uh, Adrian you said it was that you approached um alan that you said originally back in 2014 which oh. uh I mean, it's amazing it's been in the works that long that you originally envisioned it as being kind of a 
you know, a bit modeled after the uh, Mark Lewison's complete recording sessions. And, um, and boy, did it turn into something different. It is a bit like that in, in parts, but it turned into something else. So how did it go from that to what it became? So, uh, so uh, Adrian, why don't we start with your initial concept and go from there? Sure. I mean, um, we've all read Mark's book, The Complete Recording Sessions, and there's something to be said about um, fl flicking through that book because you, you start to get a deeper understanding of how the Beatles' music was crafted. Um, so I quite like the idea of doing something similar about Paul's solo music. Um, which is kind of lesser documented. Um, around that time, you know, Luca's book uh, probably was the most in-depth in exploration of Paul's studio sessions. And we wanted to go one step further and do it chronologically. Um, so yeah, I, uh, being a, uh, you know, somebody who works in television by trade, I, I wanted to work with somebody who was an, an accomplished writer. And, uh, you know, the man in the corner of the screen there, you, I couldn't have asked for a better partner really. Um, and um, and yeah, that really the, the project just kind of snowballs. Uh, and what happened was we ended up with so much information, and we thought, well, what do we do with all this information? Do we um, do we discard some of it and just focus the book the way we were going to, or, or do we present it all and tell the full story? And and so we decided to go down that route. Uh, the other thing we've said this a few times in interviews is that really to understand Paul's. Uh, story uh, and you know his creative process and his life more you need you need to see both sides of the story his um what's going on outside of the studio and what's going on inside the studio or what's going on 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 the road or whatever's going on in Paul's life and I think when you tell the uh the stories side by side um in you know in um a narrative form without any foreknowledge as Mark did with Tune In uh, you end up with, you know, a bit of a ripping yarn. It's uh, it's just it's just a great narrative. You know, you've got all these incredible stories that start presenting themselves that maybe you, you weren't aware of before and events that you start linking together that you hadn't associated with one another before. Um, I mean, the classic example is the release of Another Day. And, you know, when we started piecing together the timeline and we saw that the release date, was I think it's something like the 14th of February, uh, 71. And we realized that was the first day Paul was due in court for the beginning of the Beatles uh, case, you know, when he sued the other Beatles to dissolve their Apple partnership. So Paul in the charts has his song, It's Just Another Day, when he's appearing in court suing the other Beatles. So, and you'll find throughout the book, there are so many occasions where those stories uh, start to present themselves um, and like I said, you, you know, you end up with a far more fascinating read than just telling the story of the studio sessions in isolation. Um, so that's where we ended up with that huge book that you've all got on your hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's uh, it's just a, a fascinating read. And that's, I think, what really is its strength is is how you tie in both the, the, the personal and the professional. You know, because yes, you're right, it, it really that the two tie in so closely together. And uh, and Alan, you you talk about in your introduction um, about how you know you you did not interview uh, Paul for the book. Um, you know, not surprisingly, you note that he doesn't exactly um, you know 
love to work with biographers, uh, and uh, you know, that's not very surprising. How how do you think that you know that did did that present any kind of challenges writing the book? Do you think it would have changed anything if if you had you know talked with Paul or or you know what? How do you think that affected the book or did it? Um, I think there are certain things that might have been a little easier if we could just sent him an email uh, or, you know, have uh, some time with him, you know, at various points during the writing, because questions come up no matter, no matter how uh, much you research it, something will come up like in, in our case, in uh, one case was who paid for the recording sessions for RAM, because we oh, run wow. into this section where Len Wood from EMI turns up and he's awfully alarmed at how much he thinks Paul is spending, hasn't seen any bills yet, um, but he knows he's been recording in New York. Paul has said when he was in London uh, to talk to one of his lawyers, he, he told the press that he was on his way to Paris for more sessions, which wasn't even true, but Len Wood read that and assumed, okay, he's recording in New York, he's recording in Paris, now he's recording in LA, what's this going to cost? And we began thinking, okay, well, um, if EMI was so concerned about this and they didn't want to pay it and pretty sure the Eastman's didn't pay it and Paul wasn't going to be paying it out of pocket, how did this get paid for? And it, and it took us a lot of, uh, you know, reasoning of, okay, okay, what is the situation? Where are all of the Beatles expenses going, which was Apple and, uh, you know, and we had to sort of piece that together, but if we could have just got Paul on the phone or on email, we could have just asked and he could have just answered and it would have <laughs> saved us many hours of, uh, of working on this. But, you know, actually the, the process itself was so much fun, um, you know, and so interesting that uh, even, even without that, it, it didn't matter. The thing is that we have a huge archive of Paul McCartney interviews lots of other people involved interviews. Uh, and in, in Paul's case, I think we have so many things on video and audio and in print that we pretty much have his answers for most of the things that we would ask, you know, except for things like who paid for RAM, you know, <laughs> uh, which, you know, uh, so we, we kind of know what he has to say. And also, his memory is changing like everyone's yeah. does, you sure. know, all of ours do. You know, he looks back now and he says, uh, yeah, Jet, right. That was uh, I got the name from a pony we had. But if you go back to the 1973 interviews, you find out that it was a puppy and the pony right. didn't right. come till later. Mm -hmm. um, things like that. So uh, our feeling was that interviews from as close to the time as possible are most likely the most reliable. Um, mm. It's not always the case, you know, sometimes right at the time of the event, you might be making up a story about something else. For instance, you know, if you read some of the interviews that people were doing, people in Paul's circle were doing at the time of wildlife, you would get the impression that Mumbo was recorded live in the studio um, and that everything on wildlife was a first take. Uh, you know, Tony Clark said that, Paul said it, um, you know, and that was right at the time too. So even with interviews at the time, you have to be careful. Um, 
but we have the whole you know run of interviews from 1969 well and and earlier really all the way through to today we're still collecting them so um so that was that was how he dealt with the fact that he wasn't speaking to us specifically for the book wow i'm just gonna add i I think the one thing the one thing it did give us though was objectivity you know that we could also present the story from from other people's perspectives so you know you get to hear voices in there uh, you know talking about certain things that maybe you wouldn't have heard if we'd have made the book with paul you know it would have been more about paul's story and those voices might not even appeared at all so um so i suppose that's the one advantage it did give us was that we could speak to all these different people and tell you all these wonderful stories um about you know uh, all these all these different things that happened during that five-year period yeah i mean that's one of the one of the book's many strengths is you present so many different perspectives so you really get a a full picture Mm -hmm. and and just uh, one more question before i i pass it on to uh my colleagues i know they've got they've got uh, questions. Uh, but uh, one thing that you both touched on here is the research. And I'll tell you the massive amount of research that went into this is, is so impressive. How long did it take you? And, and how did, I mean, how did you do this? I mean, how did you go through the, just all the archives and, and the interviews? I mean, how did you break this up? I mean, how how did you accomplish this? I guess this is to, to both of you, um, as I know you both went into you know both did this. Yeah, well, it's funny. Someone someone commented on uh, Twitter, I think it was yesterday. You know, we said that the book was eight years in the making, but really it was sixteen years in the making because there's two of us. Uh, you know, because we can we can do the work of uh, two people, you know, uh, over that period of time. So it had 16 years worth of work going into it really. Um, mm. but yeah, the, in terms of the, uh, the division, um, you know, the, I was the principal researcher, but really, um, as Alan was writing, he was also researching, um, you know, so, so everything you read is based on, um, you know, a timeline that I put together, which is full of all the dates and details and information, um, but then as Alan's writing it, you know, he starts to think, well, um, you know, we're talking about Love is Strange, for example. And, you know, Alan will look at every version of Love is Strange that was recorded. And, you know, so we can <laughs> add that as a footnote. Um, you know, I mean, the, the, when you go down those kind of little rabbit holes, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they can take you to all kinds of weird and wonderful places. Um, but, yeah, yeah, it was a lot of work. And the, and the second book, which we're working on now at the moment, is equally if not more work you know we've got so much stuff for this second book it's uh perplexing right now isn't it alan it's kind of making our brains uh, <laughs> explode <laughs> yeah. just last week um the british library sent adrian a bill for back rent for the last eight years <laughs> <laughs> oh you did a book well here you go <laughs> Yeah, and a lot of it's probably just good old-fashioned detective work. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really fortunate. You know, I, I moved to where I live now, and I had no idea that um, the British Library have their kind of warehouse facilities just down the road from here. And I didn't know that when I moved here. So when we started researching this book, and I thought I'd, I'd like to go to the British Library, uh, I thought I'd be travelling on a train to London, which is two hours away. Um, and instead, I'm travelling ten minutes down the road. So. 
I suppose that's how maybe we managed to accomplish so much in a, in a short space of time in that I can be in the library in 10 minutes and work till they close and then come home. You know, so we really did an awful lot of research. The, the British Library for anybody writing a book about popular music is just the most invaluable resource, you know, not only the music press, but, um, you know, as I said, you start to go down other rabbit holes when you start to look at regional stories, you know, so the, the university tour and the British tour, um, we did a lot of research in the local newspapers to see if the, the band appeared. And of course, when Paul McCartney's in town, Paul McCartney is in the local newspaper. And you'll find thousands of those details in the book that we pluck from news reports all over the country and all over the world, in fact, you know, because we're then talking uh, Lagos, Jamaica, uh, for every holiday they went on. Obviously, they had to look at the newspapers Um and, and yeah, and it just goes on that you you end up with all these pieces that you you put together and you can tell the story in Technicolor. And that was really our aim from the start. You you did it. I love the story in Technicolor. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. That is that, <laughs> Thank is, you. that is really true. All right, let me pass it to Tom. Tom, what uh, questions do you have? Well. Uh, first, let me just say that this book is is my favorite meal of all time, and <laughs> everything is another bite. And I just can't wait for that next bite. This was, uh, like Kid says, you know, you're reading it, and next thing you know, it's it's four days later, you know, and you're still <laughs> reading. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, we you know what when you guys were on um, my other show, we we touched a little bit upon the the timeline thing, uh, you know, especially for Band on the Run, and we know the events that happened. We know, you know, quite a few. We know that he, you know, recorded at uh, at um, Ginger's place. We know that the tapes were stolen. We know the tra- the run in that he had with Fela Kuti. You know, uh, talk about putting those events in order because we knew of those events. We really didn't know where, when they happened in the timeline. You guys absolutely actually were able to to do that and talk about coming to the c- conclusion that this was as accurate as possible. Well, the I suppose the the most uh, um, pivotal events that happened during that time were uh, Paul going to see Feller in concert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feller then accusing him of stealing the black man's music. Uh, Paul collapsing. Uh, Paul being held at knife point uh, with Linda. Um, I suppose those are the major ones, aren't they? Really, those four. Um, and and really finding out when those events took place was the most important thing with regards to the Lagos timeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we found the date for the Fella concert through a concert poster that was in the mm-hmm. Lagos press. And then we discovered that the day afterwards, Fella had been down to the studios because he then appeared on um, the BBC World Service and Nigerian radio and made the newspapers the day after. So we then could put those events in, in line um we were we were given the date of paul and linda being held at knife point from an internal mpl timeline that was published in 1976 so we can nail that down uh, definitively uh what's the last one i'm i'm missing here uh, um, paul passing out yeah and i and i think that was just that one i don't think we were actually given you know a, a document that had that date on it it, it, it was just a case of when, when we told the story and we found all the accounts of that story, we, we then knew when that 
um, event happened. Um, so yeah, what we ended up with was a timeline which showed them in Nigeria for two weeks recording, keeping themselves to themselves more or less, mm-hmm. and just kind of getting on with recording, uh, spending their weekends hanging out with um, you know uh, local tri- tribal leaders and the local uh, country club swimming. Uh, and playing pranks on Jeff Emmerich stuff like that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then um, and then basically it started to unravel. You know, the second that they went to that concert, uh, the whole visit began to unravel, and you know they ended up back in London. What was it, five or six days later? Uh, mm. So, like you said, you know, um, we kind of we all we all knew those events happened but we didn't know in which order they they happened um, but when you tell that story in the correct order you you, you start to understand the story dramatically uh, and and the reasons behind why certain choices were made um uh, but yeah that was uh, i mean that was the culmination of i don't know how many years worth of trying to find those pieces really that mm. that last date came in uh, for Linda uh, and Paul being held at knife point really late in the day um, and it was a game changer really being able to place right. when that was yeah because you know the way we 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 may understand it is is that we we feel that that happened at the beginning of those sessions um, rather than towards the end so again I mean great job of, of, of putting all the pieces uh, together in, in this book and making it you know, painting that picture as accurate as possible so so great guys great job guys on that um, we know that Paul was invited for the concert of George. Um, I never knew that he was invited for the one in the one concert. Can you talk about, you know, how finding that out and who actually invited him uh, for that to, to that. And it was just, I think it was Paul and wings that were, were both were invited. I mean, I think John did, um, uh, Adrian, how did we, how did we come up with that? Well, I mean, that that was just something that was mentioned by John in an interview. Uh, And this is the thing you went when you spend uh, months and months in the library and you read every copy of the every music paper for that period, uh, which is what I did, you know. So I would have read through uh, Melody Maker, Disc, Sounds, uh, Enemy um, and Record Mirror, as well as a lot of other magazines as well that were published, you know, like some of the... um, uh, the, t- the teen mags, they often ran stories with, with members of the Beatles. And we read every interview with every member of the Beatles for that period as well. And uh, we clipped uh, everything that they were doing because that was quite important to our story, knowing where the other Beatles were and what they were up to. Uh, and that was just something that was mentioned by John during an interview. He said that he'd invited Paul along. Um, and yeah, we, we, we decided to uh, you know expand that in, in the book and give a little bit more detail about how that concert came about and you know even researching that one-to-one concert was really interesting right and uh yeah when you when you when you watch the was it um uh, geraldo rivero was it that did the report which led to that right. i think it was wasn't it yeah which, and we actually even found the original report um and, and which led to the one-to-one concert and and looked at uh rivero's movements around that time so yeah it was a really interesting uh p- part of the research but yeah we didn't know that before we stumbled upon that fact uh, just in an yeah. interview so yeah a lot of those facts came from interviews with the other beatles right because you know we know that klein was the big factor for concert of george and john is still with klein uh for this concert as well so i would imagine that him not going was probably 
you know, kind of towards the same reason as not doing the uh, the, the the Bangladesh uh, concert as well. Anything that Klein would take credit for, which he would have right. done, um, <laughs> falls against for obvious reasons. Yeah. Right. Mm. Yeah, interesting stuff. Um, you know, and then you also, you know, pepper in a lot of just little tidbits of Paul's genius right here. Okay, he's, I think he's at the, uh, the was it No Secret uh, Sessions for Carly Simon and Richard Perry is the producer and Richard Perry is also working on the Ringo album as well. He wants, here's his opportunity to get Paul involved, right? So this is, it's Saturday, March 24th. And then Paul's like, well, I'll do something if you give me a deadline. He goes, okay, well, how about Wednesday, which is only four days later. And he comes up with six o'clock, you know, <laughs> which was arguably the best song that anybody wrote for Ringo, you know, in my opinion. So mine, mine especially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, you know, all I like I'm the greatest too. Hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, no, nothing wrong with that as well. But, um, <laughs> Well, yeah, just these little details in there is, is fantastic. But uh, I've got more, but I'll, I'll send it off to, to Joe now. Okay. No, to me. Yeah, again, okay. yep. yeah, again we were, I was just going to oh. say, again, we were quite lucky with, with that Ringo story that we were able to find the, the date of the session, which we were given by Richard Perry. So, um, so we knew exactly when that session took place. So we could tell you when that Wednesday was and, and right. identify when the deadline Paul was then working to. So I think when you can give that level of, of accuracy with something, it, it makes oh, the story so much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And also Agreed. Richard Perry worked on the James Paul McCartney special um, mm. you know, in, in briefly. And uh, so it, it's funny what a small world it is. You know, we, we, we were constantly running into connections between all these people that we hadn't quite realized were there. It's mm. very illuminating and continues to be in volume two. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was just gonna say, I, today I've been looking into something which I still can't find an answer to, um, which is that um, a member of uh, the band Chocolate Milk uh, called mm. Kenneth Afro Williams appeared during the Venus and Mars sessions in London. Um, and uh, that band would normally record at Sea Saint Studios, which is where Wings ended up finishing the album off. Um, but nobody can explain why a percussionist from New Orleans just happened to be in the studio with Wings before they went to, um, uh, to New Orleans to record. And apparently there was no connection. It was just a coincidence. But it seems like a really big coincidence that a member of a New Orleans band would be in the studio with Wings about six weeks before they went to his native studio in, in New Orleans. So like Alan mm. said, you know, you're constantly finding this kind of interconnection between people, even when, right. you, you know, there isn't, there's nothing to read into it. <laughs> well, if you just want to forward all the notes that you guys are discovering at the same time, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> don't worry about it. We'll, you know, our, our lips are sealed. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right, well, First of all, guys, you know, really learned a bunch of things and reading the book, obviously. And I have to tell you that one of the things that I really appreciated was the idea and feeling that Paul was really made human in this. And what I mean by that is different facets to Paul. See, now, I, when we do this show, a lot of times I'm the spice. And it's a lot of sugar and I'm the spice of it. So I'm going to spice it up a little bit already. <laughs> you know, with Paul, of course, we get a lot of this. 
and all that kind of stuff in public and all that. And, you know, we, uh, we learn, of course, more about his positive attitude, work ethic, and all those wonderful things that make him so special and who he is and so professional. But I like that there was some uh, stuff in there, like talking about how difficult it could be sometime working with Paul, like the, the troubles with um, Henry McCulloch, and uh, even though apparently him leaving uh, led to tears. Oh, we lost Kit. Okay, I'll continue. Led even to tears, even Henry himself, from what what I what I read there. But it's a long-winded question. But yeah, I, I I'm amazed by when I'm hearing about the stuff that we know. Like Henry McCulloch did such a wonderful lead solo on My Love, and Paul mm-hmm. let him let him do that. And then later on, when they were rehearsing No Words, right during um, Band on the Run sessions. He almost had to beg Paul, you know, give me a chance, give it a chance if you don't like it. But Paul apparently, in no uncertain terms, was, I won't quote what he, as in the book, but, you know, you'll bleep and do it and that's it. And that's the kind of thing that we don't often hear from Paul. I was kind of surprised by that. And uh, along those lines, I, I guess other things in the book are like that. But along those lines, I'm wondering, was this a decision that you, you made? Well, we're not going to hide anything if, if something negative is there we'll do it not a situation where like say i'll take the liberty of saying philip norman trying to maybe arguably placate paul later on in a later book uh did you guys make the, the decision to kind of just tell it all like it is yeah that was the idea to tell it like it is and and if we ran into something that we knew you know probably Paul wouldn't tell if it was his own film or book or whatever. Uh, we still had to do it if if we ran into it and if it was significant or interesting. I mean, I'm sure there are tons of things that that everybody in the book did that other people didn't like that are just inconsequential and you know you don't need to have it in a book 50 years later. Um, but we felt that you know we we did want to we did want to give him some texture you know we didn't want to make him a saint and we didn't want to make him a devil we wanted to just show paul as he is and what he's like to work with and you know to the degree that we could get the information to do that which you know talking to other people and and reading whatever there is and uh you know and 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 people you know not everybody found him the most easy person to work with and uh and and a lot of people did so you know we have we have a a big variety of opinion there also about linda you know there are people who found linda kind of you know haughty and entitled and a lot of people who really loved you know, loved her as a person, you know, may have, may, may have even said, you know, okay, she wasn't the greatest keyboard player, you know, but she was a great mother and she was a really warm person to, to, to be with. And she, you know, would make Thanksgiving dinner for the band and and the whole thing. So we, you know, we wanted to have as textured a portrait as we possibly could. And that meant, you know, putting in as as much detail as we could, whatever the detail was. As one of the reviews put it, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. the, uh, if the devil is in the details, the 
McCartney legacy is positively satanic. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> well, that, no, but but that's important not to go all, all negative. You know, a lot of people say that that's my reputation. I'm always going <laughs> the downer, but not not always. But you mentioned it's Linda, and I, we didn't. The idea was to go negative or positive. I mean, the right, idea right. that we're that we're doing the book um, is because we admire him as an artist you know so so i think with that as the sort of you know standard uh you know median line or whatever everything else sort of fills out you know and we weren't there to hide anything and we weren't there to yeah. you know whatever and, and really the, if, i'm sorry i was just going to say and, and really if you look at um band on the run as the example that they fell out during the rehearsals for band on the run uh, Paul and Henry uh, locked horns during the rehearsals for, for no words. Henry closed his guitar case and walked. Um, it was kind of Paul's, um, uh, I don't know, slightly overbearing nature during those rehearsals uh, that, that led to that happening. So that's the negative. Um, and then his response to that is, you know, we'll show them. And then the positive uh, of all of it is that you end up with band on the run. So, so really, we sh we shows showed the cause and effect. You know, uh, the cause being uh, Henry leaves the band because Paul was overbearing, and the effect is you end up with this amazing album. So, without one, you can't have the other, can you? So, I, I think that's the importance, like Alan said, of presenting the whole story. You know, what's and all. Mm. Yeah, and uh, how triumphant that album was, and if that wasn't uh, you know a positive kind of like that, yeah, that'll show you a kind of vengeance, so to speak, not deliberate vengeance, but he had to feel good about that. Um, but I just wanted to mention quickly, you know, uh, Linda. Look, I I, I met Linda, uh, and you know she's wonderful. Everybody loves Linda. She's she's a sweetheart and she's really a very down to earth kind of person. That's why, again, I was so shocked during that story to read that when the time came when uh, Henry finally told Paul he wasn't going to go to Lagos, and the, the phone conversation, and there was a hang up, Linda called back and said, how dare you inconvenience us? I just couldn't imagine that. I couldn't, I could not imagine that happening. So I was like, wow, that's an interesting uh, you know, reveal. The other thing that, that comes through is that Linda really was fiercely in that I, I choose that word, you know, deliberately, fiercely protective of Paul and fiercely mm. supportive of whatever it is he wanted to do. You know, she may have had, you know, private issues with this or that, but if this is what he wanted to do, then she was there and, and you know, she was going to be the angry den mother calling up the other guy and saying, how dare you mm -hmm. inconvenience us. Um, you know, Paul, I don't think would have done that, but Linda, uh, you know, and I think that Linda was also, you know, she had a relationship with Denny as well. You know, Paul and Linda were both very close to the to the Sywells. And, um, you know, maybe she felt that she could convince him, even if Paul couldn't, whatever it was. Um, you know, Linda, I think Linda in this book comes off again with more texture than she usually gets. You know, we have um, many different sides of her, including the very sort of realist Linda that keeps coming out where someone will come to her and say, well, is, 
is Paul a really, you know, good supportive piano teacher? And she'll say, absolutely not. He has no <laughs> patience for someone who doesn't already know. You know, she doesn't mind saying, you know, what the truth is from her point of view. But if someone is, if someone is going against what Paul wants to do, she's gonna, she's gonna be there, you know, like a you know, like a, a mother lion, you know. Mm -hmm. Which is as it should be, really, you know. And I apologize if I made an error. I think I might have said Henry on the phone. I met Denny at that point. But uh, okay, just let me ask a question. I'm swinging it around to something kind of positive, I hope. Um, the Wings 1972 over Europe tour. Now, they were asked to rehearse some Beatles songs, and I think they had done Long and Winding Road and Yesterday. They rehearsed it, they rehearsed them. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you elaborate on that? And how, you know, how did Paul feel about Beatles at that time, earlier on at that time? Yeah, well, I think Paul Paul uh, was asked by probably every promoter in Europe, you know, play some Beatles tunes because they knew that that would bring the crowds out. Um, but for Paul, he always said that it was uh, still, I don't know, that the breakup was still a little bit too raw for him around that time. Uh, so, but they did. Um, they did play in the in the James Paul McCartney TV special. They did play the Long and Winding Road. It just wasn't used. Um, and obviously, Paul played some Beatles tunes during his acoustic set of the James Paul McCartney special. So that was really Paul's first step towards, um, you know, accepting that you know the Beatles were no more, but he could still hold on to that kind of material that he'd recorded with them. Um, but yeah, I think that was really the only reason why they didn't take them on tour. He might have said that he wanted the band to have its own identity, but really the band didn't have much material to have an identity in 1972. Mm. You know, they were they were really filling out to try and to try and get the set as long as it was, and it maybe would have helped them out if they played some Beatles songs. But um, but as I, as Alan mentioned earlier on as well, uh, I think Cli the Klein effect probably also played into that played into that at the time. You know that. Would playing Beatles tunes in some way, uh, you know, uh, make Klein happy in some way? Or I don't know. You've got to think there, there, I think there was a, a sort of psychological barrier about the association of his music and Klein that he didn't want to cross that, that barrier. As soon as Klein was gone, uh, you know, the floodgates were open and that was it, really. That's, that's, that's true. All right. Uh, lastly, just one more thing I, I was wondering about. about um, you, you got access to Denny Sywell's diaries, right? For this, uh, could you tell us about that? How did you, how did you, how did you get those? And he just offered them up to you. Yeah. Yeah, it was that simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't steal them, right? You didn't go in there. Yeah, no, it, was, it, was, it was. It was. It was. It was really wild. Was that? You know. It's... Oops. Uh, audio. We lost your audio, Adrian. Yeah. Hmm. I I can tell it while he's fiddling with his okay. audio. All right, Adrian. We we interviewed Denny maybe four or five times, and I interviewed him first, and then Adrian wanted to follow up, and um, Adrian did a phone interview with him, and it was on uh, Halloween. So while he's sort of dealing with trick or treaters. He's talking to Danny at the same time. And while this is going on, Danny says, um, you know, by the way, 
Um, I kept these logs of my sessions and uh, my wife kept a diary, you know, just about, you know, what, what we did and where and when and, and all that. Would, would those things interest you? <laughs> One of the great questions, <laughs> you know, so, and, and uh, yeah, they, they did interest us a great deal. A little bit. So, <laughs> back, Adrian? Adrian? Yeah. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, yes. yeah, no, it really was that simple. It was a case of, um, you know, would you like to read what's in these diaries? And, and that was it, yeah. You can't get more official and specific than that. <laughs> writing a book. Right. Okay, well, Ken, I'll hand it over to you, Ken. All right, thanks, Joe. And I want to repeat what all of you have been saying to thank you for this book, because I think more than anything, it really helps to explain how complex a person Paul McCartney could be. We all are. And with all he had going on in his life, those first few years after the Beatle breakup, you really explain it so well. But I want to uh, tell you guys that I feel very privileged that I've had the chance to interview a lot of members of Wings going into this book. I've interviewed Denny Sywell a number of times, Henry McCullough I've interviewed, uh, Lawrence Juber, Steve Holly, and Denny Lane. And depending upon who you talk to, certainly Denny Sywell and Lawrence Juber will give you the impression that Wings was very much a band and they weren't sidemen to Paul. And Henry, I don't think, would have said that. <laughs> um, but I know in the case of, because you go into Red Rose Speedway and how it went from being a double album to a single album, um, you said that Wings had very little input in picking the material on on the single album and Denny Sywell has told me a few times that they all were involved with picking the songs and in addition to that and, and I want to thank you for clarifying something here because it was my impression that Red Rose Speedway became a single album more because Wildlife didn't do that well but it had to do more I guess with Capitol Records realizing the Red and the Blue collections were coming out and there'd be too much Beatle product and also George Harrison had Living in the Material World coming out the next month. So that's why it was trimmed to a single album. Even though Yoko Ono had a double album out in January, I guess that had nothing to do with it. But um, <laughs> can you explain, you know, the information that you got about Red Rose and how it was trimmed down to a single album? Because according to what Danny Sywell has told me, they were all involved with it. And the main concern that that they had was that the songs would flow together well and sequence well. And that's why they picked the songs that they did. And just one more thing, because in your book, I think you said that uh, EMI didn't want the other members' songs. They didn't want Denny Lane songs. They didn't want mm -hmm. Linda McCartney on lead vocals. So that also explained why those songs were eliminated. Yeah, no. I think um, it too much. I, I, I mean, the... <laughs> Again, as Alan touched on earlier earlier in uh, our chat, you, you go back to the, the very earliest interviews and the first person to speak about the trimming to a single album, I think it was Henry at the time. Uh, and he said that um, it wasn't their decision. They had nothing to do with it. And then I think we traced every band member's reaction to the trimming of the sing single album as close to the event as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, it was Denny Lane who said that uh, EMI didn't want other members of the group 
uh, you know, singing lead vocals. That that was basically something something Danny Lane had said, said which makes perfect sense really when you see the the final track list. Uh, so yeah, it, it, again, it was just a case of uh, looking at the information that we had and looking at all of the interviews that we had um, as close to the period as possible that weren't um, you know people looking back and reflecting on it although maybe some of them were a little bit further away from the event uh, in order to, to tell the true story of what happened there. Um, and I think we also had an interview with Paul's manager, uh, Vincent Romeo, from mm. around 1976, where, where he talked about the, the trimming to a single album. So, so again, he, he kind of confirmed the story. Uh, you know, that, that was a decision that was made for commercial reasons. It was a case of what would be a more commercial album, uh, a collection of cuts by all different members of Wings or a very commercial pop album, which is what it became with all the lead vocals sung by Paul. Uh, and really that's what EMI and Capital wanted. And that's what they ended up releasing. But mm. it would have been a much, much better album if they'd issued uh, the double LP and I think people would probably look back at that as a classic uh, if it had been issued as a double LP, because it was a great showcase for the band. Every member of the band had a, you know, had a solo spot really on that uh, double LP. Uh, and, you know, I, I was relieved when they reissued it as part of the, um, you know, the uh, archive series a few years back. Yeah, well, I'm just going by what Denny Sywell has always told me. And yeah, he's yeah. He's one of them. He must know. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, you have these conversations uh, and you'll talk to five people that were in the room and you get four different stories, you know, and two of them uh, confirm the same thing. And then you look at all of the um, uh, paperwork and press and things relating to a certain subject and you you eventually kind of fettle it down to the truth or as close to the truth as you're going to get 50 years on. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm sure that uh, every person that was in that room will, will tell you a different story of why that was cut down to a single LP. <laughs> right. But it does illustrate in the book how, um, you know, Paul really wanted Wings to be established as a real band. He even say that he wanted every member for the public to know their first names the same way that they knew John, Paul, George and Ringo. And the fact that he wanted it to be a double album with Denny Lane songs and Linda McCartney songs like Seaside Woman, um mm -hmm. and also even early on in concert henry got his instrumental song in there and denny lane got um i would only smile and say you don't mind so um yeah but you also say that once he finished band on the run he was thinking about how he wanted wings to be you know a democracy everybody equal and everything but since he had to deal with both Denny Sywell and Henry McCoy leaving, he had a different change of mind after that. And he didn't look at the band the same way. Can you explain what you mean about that? Did he just think, well, I proved myself without Henry and Denny there with just the three of us, you hmm. know, because he did go on to, you look at the Wings Over America tour, Denny Lane got five songs to sing. You know, Jimmy McCulloch got one song mm. in there. Wings at the speed of sound. Everybody has a lead vocal. So he was thinking about Wings still as a band, at least in my mind. I think he was um, uh, conflicted about that in a way. I mean, from the very start, when Denny Sywell turned up and, and, and 
and they are talking about forming wings, Paul is saying, according to Denny, um, this will be an equal partnership. Everybody will be an owner of this band, I think is the, the phrase that, that Denny quoted him saying. Uh, everybody will have a share in it and will split the proceeds and all of that stuff. Um, but the circumstances made that really difficult to put into effect. Um, and then as you go on, you begin to see the other aspect of the is it Paul or is it a band story, which is um, when they're working on the material, does everybody in the band get an equal input? You know, and we run into, you know, those two uh, stories of, you know, no words and my love, where in both cases, Henry basically has to beg to play his own guitar solo. And in one case, he is given a yes. And in one case, he's given a no. But the impression you get from listening to Henry is, is all through this was sort of an issue. And it had to have been kind of puzzling for Henry, you know, why would you hire me? You know, I'm known as a blues guitarist who plays solos and, you know, and is a, a, a creative player. Why would you hire me just to be the, you know, third violinist in the eighth row of the New York Philharmonic <laughs> fundamentally, you know, just play what's on the page in front of you or what I've, you know, whispered in your ear. Um, that really bothered him. And from his point of view, that isn't being a band. That's being just told what to do, you know, by the leader, you know, and then, you know, just to be realistic, everybody was coming to see Paul, you know, mm. if, if, if they went on tour, who's selling the tickets really, you know, and that wasn't lost on Paul and it wasn't lost on all of them. And uh, so it's a, it's a very difficult balancing act because part of him really wanted it to be a band because uh, especially early on, um, he had just come out of the Beatles. The Beatles was a band. That's what he wanted again. He, you know, but it's not like you're going to get that again if you were a Beatle and everybody else in your band wasn't, you know, and not only wasn't, but it's not like the band was a band of everybody was a superstar. Mm -hmm. really just Paul was a superstar in that band. You know, some people, people who followed Joe Cocker, et cetera, knew Henry, people knew Denny Lane from the Moody, early Moody Blues. And you people sort of knew them, but they weren't on Paul's level of magnitude. Um, so it, it's hard to have a real band if you have one absolute star, you know, no matter how good everybody else is. You know, look at his current band. They're really good. They can do anything in his catalog, um, note perfect, but mm. people don't go to see them. They go to see Paul. Well, you know, how, how we all define what a band is could be different from everybody. Sure. Cause to me, it, it comes down more to collaboration and how much there is. And based on what I've heard from different members of wings is that Paul would be willing to accept an idea of yours. If he liked it, he would put it in the song. But there were times when he knew exactly what he wanted and he wanted you to play it that way. Mm -hmm. So it worked both ways in the band. Um, but there were times when, like, you know, my love, he loved the solo on that, but he wanted Henry to play it the same way every time. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, I think like you say, Ken, that's fundamentally what it comes down to is if he liked what he was hearing, right? then great. But if he didn't like what he was hearing, then he would tweak it. You know, if you look at the entry for Give Ireland Back to the Irish, uh, you, you see, you know, Henry starts off that song with a 12 note wailing guitar solo. And then that's whittled down to six and then it's whittled down to four or whatever, whatever it ends up being on the record. Um, and that was all chronicled by a journalist who was sitting in on the session. So you, you, you got a real insight to how that process between Henry and Paul worked very early on. Um, and I think that that continued, you know, if if they were playing a song in the studio and Henry came up with something that Paul likes, I'm sure it went on the record. Um, and that's why we ended up with probably so many of those uh, jams that were recorded mm. uh, during that period of Red Rose Speedway. Um, that s- some of them, you know, were intended for the double LP, um, like Night Out and things like that. Um, but fundamentally, when it came to, you know, the pop songs, Paul really had an idea of what he wanted it to be, you know, and, and that rippled through everything. It ripples through to the guys playing recorders. Uh, you know, the Dolmetsch family playing recorders on the Wildlife album. You know, Paul told them every note he wanted them to play on the piano and mm. they just played it back uh, in harmony. You know, so so it's, it kind of, like I said, it ripples through the whole process and you see that kind of quite frequently. So uh, I suppose the, the more you start to see that pa- pattern of behaviour, the, the more you probably think that that's something that happened a lot during their, their time in the studio. And either you accepted it um, as as part of being in the band and uh, and collaborating, or or you didn't in Henry's case, and you walk. Um, but I think fundamentally, Paul's relationship with his sideman evolved over the years as well. You know, and uh, certainly you'll see a lot of that in the second book. You know, Paul spends a lot of time in Nashville trying to get his head around what the next. Um, incarnation of wings is going to be and, and how it's going to work will they have contracts will they not have contracts you know right. how will it work artistically um how will it work when they go on tour you know and there's a lot of stuff going through his mind um and, and yeah we'll you know explore a lot of that in the second book um, yeah like, well, like you say you'll you'll see fundamentally kind of how Paul's idea maybe of wings and whether or not it was a band evolved um over that period of time uh, until until wings was no more i just think you know there's always this growing room for debate as to whether yeah. that wings was a real band and you know like i said wings at the speed of sound every member had a lead vocal well that was paul's decision he didn't have to put it out that way and he could have had the wings over america tour be him doing every vocal just like he does now but it wasn't in those days well, yeah, it raises, it raises actually two questions. It's not just whether Wings was a band. It's also whether Paul wanted it to be a band. He wanted it to be a band most of the time. Um, whether it was a band is a totally different question, you know, and, and it could change with every recording, you know, hmm. whether it was a band or not. Um, I, think the, I think the other thing about that point you made about the 76 tour where all the band had their moment in the spotlight, there were also... Um, practical reasons for doing that because it allowed Paul um, a break from singing so I I think that it kind of worked both ways for him to to give Danny Lane a few songs and to give Jimmy a song or two Um, you know that really meant that he during a two two hour 15 minute set I think it was wasn't it that Paul got a couple of breaks in there so but yeah no I'm absolutely with you you know he 
he clearly wanted the band to, to be a democracy when it came to speed of sound. Um, but he, um, but yeah, whether or not he was willing to embrace that uh, long term, I don't know. I mean, it quickly, kind of quickly unraveled in London town, didn't it? So, hmm. well, Denny Lane kind of waffles when he when he gives <laughs> his assessment about the Wings days because I know that when the Moody Blues were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he said that Wings wasn't really a band. But I know that when I interviewed him a while ago, he said that Paul was always encouraging him to write. You know, and he wouldn't he wouldn't have wanted that if if he didn't want it to be more of a collaboration. And Wing uh, London Town is is the ultimate example of that, because there are about five songs that that Paul and Denny Lane wrote together. Yeah, so, I mean, that was the, that was their most product. That yeah. was their most productive period, really, was London Town. But before then, essentially, Denny, you know, he, he complained at the end of recording. um Band on the Run did Denny to the music press. He said, oh, I just feel like it's a Paul and Linda album. You know? And I didn't really have much of an input. I was just there as a session guy. Um, but then when Paul encouraged him to write songs, you know, did he come forward with, you know, a, a songbook brimming with all these brilliant ideas that they could use on the next record? Well, no, he didn't. So, um, you know, I mean, on uh, Venus and Mars, did Denny did Denny write anything on Venus and Mars? Did, was yeah. it one song he, maybe? No, he, he sang, did a couple of vocals on it. Yeah, on Spirits of Ancient Egypt, he sang lead right. vocals on the verse. That's right. Verses, um, but... And he and he wrote a song while they were in Nashville. He wrote "Send Me the Heart," but right. really, he, he wasn't a he wasn't a productive or prolific songwriter. Was was Denny? Right. So I think that's may, maybe where fundamentally the idea of it being a band. Uh, you know kind of unraveled slightly was because Paul didn't have someone as prolific as John working alongside him so it did become Paul McCartney and Wings because Paul was the man that was writing all of the material and yet uh, at one Beatles convention in Connecticut I interviewed Danny and he said Ben on the Run was the most enjoyable album that he worked on with Paul (laughs) so (laughs) like I said he waffles a bit so you don't really know what to think um, I also wanted to bring up that there was one point where you're talking about um, when Helen Wheels came out as a single and Paul was seeing that Ringo had photograph out at that time and John had mind games out at the time and he was thinking, oh, I got to top them now. Hmm. Do you think that Paul was really that competitive with the others? Did it really matter that much to him? Um, that he had to perform better with his music or was he just, could he possibly have been despite all the, the legal problems that he had with the other Beatles, just genuinely happy if the others did well? I think he was happy if the others did well, but he was also competitive with them. He was competitive with them when he was in the Beatles, <laughs> you know? So, you know, why wouldn't he be? He was competitive with, uh, and not just them, you know, he wanted to be, more successful than any other band, you know, or, or solo artist as, as, as sort of anyone who does what he does probably would, you know, you, you don't, you don't probably get to be Paul McCartney because, because just okay is good enough for you. You know, Mm. (laughs) you know, he wanted everything he did to be the most successful. Um, and sometimes that there were odd decisions in there. You know, if you want what you're doing to be the most successful, why are you putting out Mary Had a Little Lamb? I don't know. You know, he had, uh, but, but, but when the question came up, um, 
brought up by the other members of Wings. He reached for the music papers and he looked at the top 10 and he said, novelty record, novelty record, novelty record, you know, why is this so different? You know, he's, is there's, he has his own internal logic. Hmm. Very hmm. much so. Hey, yeah. kid is back, I think. Oh, wait, wait. Let's see <laughs> if we get her back. Because yes. it'll be perfect timing if it works. Yay. There she is. Well, hey, a, guys. Hey, kid, <laughs> the, time, the timing couldn't be better, by really? the way. Really? Just about your turn. Oh, oh my gosh. Shopping. Okay. Grocery shopping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you went out oh, to buy it, another copy of the book, right? <laughs> wow that was good yep it's it's been uh it's been interesting <laughs> but finally our our connections back up <laughs> perfect timing excellent so uh so it's so it's my well, turn i don't yes. mean to cut you off Dan. excuse you. me I oh go right ahead you. i'm sorry <laughs> no 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 i'm saying I, I i timed everything so that you, so that you return <laughs> so that so we back just to you. my last question for the moment. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, so sorry about that extended interruption. My goodness. So our, our power went on and off and, uh, and then it took forever for the modem to reboot and, uh, <laughs> and I'm back. Can't, can't be helped. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, of all days that that had to happen. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but good, I, I, I guess that was good timing, sort of, but I hated to miss all the conversation, my goodness. You'll so, the show. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> my goodness. So, okay, well, I, I hope I just have a, a couple of questions, and I hope they haven't been asked already since I, <laughs> I had to miss. <laughs> part of it um but um i uh, has uh, the question been asked about uh paul and his producers has no. that been asked oh good okay um so uh that was one thing that i really enjoyed uh in the book was the relationship of uh between paul and uh and his uh, the producers he worked with particularly of course on ram and uh, Red Rose Speedway. Um, and uh, I mean, it was almost funny. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the, you know, the, the producers walking out and everything. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more um, about that. Uh, particularly, I, I love the story about Glenn Johns and Mary Had a Little Lamb. Yeah. <laughs> I think Paul uh, just got his timing wrong when it came to picking producers. So uh, in uh, February 71, when they're recording Ram, Paul wasn't in the greatest, you know, frame of mind to be working with someone else. I don't think around that time. He was clearly depressed, going through a lot with what was going on back in London with the court action. Uh, so when he started working with, with Jim Gersio, um, I think there was only ever going to be one outcome there, really. When Paul started arriving to the studio late and he, he was smoking heavily, smoking a lot of dope, um, I, I think, you know, Jim Gersio obviously has this vision that he's fulfilling this, you know, childhood dream of working with with one of the Beatles, his, his idols, you know. 
um and, and then that start then that quickly unraveled you know within the space of a week or two wasn't it i mean it was really quick um and with the glenn johns uh, situation i again i just think it was poor timing i think that wings went into the studio too early uh, the material they had probably wasn't strong enough to be the backbone of an album around that time. And uh, they were found out by a producer who wasn't going to stand for any of that, you know. Um, so, so yeah, like I say, I think fundamentally it was it was all down to timing. But, yeah, poor, poor Glenn Johns, you've got a feel for him, haven't you, that he's there with Paul at the beginning of 1969 and the Beatles are kind of at their creative peak where Paul is, you know, just riffing and, and uh, you know, creating songs in the studio. Uh, and then he sees the man, it's almost exactly three years later. And he probably just, he was probably just in disbelief, really, at the material that Paul was bringing into the studio. I mean, we've all got, as, as uh, Wings fans, we've all got affection for those songs that they recorded, When the Night, and you know, some of those other tunes that were recorded during those Olympic sessions. But let's just say that they're, they're not on the same level as Get Back and The Long and Winding Road and Let It Be and the stuff that John saw Paul recording with the Beatles uh, and that we've all seen now through Peter Jackson's documentary. Uh, so, yeah, you had to feel um, for Glyn Johns. And really, you know, with a fiery personality, yeah, again, that was only ever going to end one way, which was with him heading towards the exit. <laughs> makes, for, really. makes for great drama. I don't it even know wonderful. why Paul wants a producer sometimes. I don't even know why Paul is having a producer. Well, actually, that was that was my next question that, you know, at one point, Paul uh, said, and I can't remember if it was which producer it was when he said, oh, I want you to treat me just like the bass player. You know, and then you said, you know, that that didn't last for too long. And mm -hmm. and so, uh, you know, how do you you know, what do you make of that? You know, what exactly at this point, you know, as we're only talking about this this period of time, uh, as you call it, Wings Mark One, um, you know, what what exactly was his relationship with with producers in this phase? I think that he. Um... Yeah, Jim Guercio was wasn't really his idea. It was mm -hmm. more John Eastman's idea, and basically, it was that John Eastman was sort of looking at Paul working months and months in the studio, recording well more than an album worth of material, and not finishing. And he just felt that you know maybe having an outside hand to you know come in and look at the stuff and sort of guide you towards finishing it off would be a helpful thing. And Paul agreed to that, which is how Guercio got there. And he um, and, and, and he probably, you know, it, it's like that question about whether he wants Wings to be a band or not, which just before you came in, mm -hmm. uh, we had a long discussion of there are things that he wants ideally, but somehow in practice has a hard time um, achieving you know it, it's more of a theoretical thing that he wants but the reality is that it doesn't really work for him you know and he you know even by the end of the Beatles there's some question about who's producing and and who is you know just 
sort of watching from the second floor of Abbey Road. Um, you know, I don't want to I don't want to take anything away from George Martin, you know, but uh, if George Martin came up with, you know, these great arrangements, it's because at that point, you know, the end of the Beatles is because Paul said, I want strings on this. You know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the normal producer is in charge kind of thing. Uh, he was a collaborator with them rather than the boss of the sessions. Uh, and that's what Paul was used to. And the idea of having a boss of the sessions imposed on him, even if he's the one imposing it, even if he's the one saying, just treat me as the bass player, it just wasn't working for him um, at that point in his career. Um, you know, later on, I think he was able to work with producers because he'd been through an awful lot more, made an awful lot more music and began to see producers as another collaborative voice that perhaps could shape the tone of what he was doing, and, you know, and be another influence. Um, but in this volume of the story, uh, it, it just didn't work. And he wanted it to work. I think he really wanted it to work or he wouldn't have done it, you know, um, mm. But just in practice, uh, it, it just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. I think there might have been, um, or, you know, with uh, Glenn Johns, uh, just off the back of the university tour, there might have been an element with Paul there as well of um, almost trying to recreate what the Beatles did um, with, with George Martin. So he's just been on the band with, uh, so he's just been on the road with Wings. The university tour was their equivalent of Hamburg and the Cavern Club. So going into the studio with Glyn Johns at the start of 1972 was almost like Paul's way of saying, right, well, when the Beatles first started out, we had a producer, we had George Martin. Maybe that's the way we need to go with this album. You know, we'll bring in a producer, he'll give us some direction, um, and we'll maybe put something together that's a little bit more polished than Wildlife. Um, but yeah, like Alan said, ultimately, you can't wind the clock back. Um, and, and undo everything you've done over that 10 year period with the Beatles and beyond. So yeah, it just didn't work out in the end. Yeah, mm. that's, that's true. Um, mm. Just a, a, one more question. Um, one thing that absolutely fascinated, well, many things that fascinated me about this book is the, there, there was such a dichotomy with Paul's personality that on the one hand, and stop me if you guys have already talked about this, but on the one hand, you know, you had this side of Paul that, you know, is, is very, you know, with lack of, for lack of a better word, controlling. I mean, you know, he, he knows what he wants. He, he absolutely, you know, and then, and of course, uh, um, Denny, Sywell, uh, Henry McCollum, you know, would, would bristle under this, um, you know, saying, this is what I want. This is how you play it. This is what I want. And then on the other hand, uh, particularly before Band on the Run, you would have, well, the producers, as we just talked about, get frustrated with them because they would, you know, he and the band would get stoned in the studio and, and you know, would drink and that kind of thing. And so, you know, you would have this this real you know, dichotomy uh you know this 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 sort of personality split that you know on the one hand he would be so controlling and on the other hand you know there were times when the producers clearly wanted to throttle him <laughs> you know for i think um, yeah i think it i think it comes back to it 
Well, I think it comes back to a discussion we were having before you uh, uh, disappeared, actually, mm-hmm. with Ken, which is that I don't think Paul really knew what, what he wanted uh, Wings to be. Um, so he had this conflict, you know, which was, um, you know, I was considered by George Harrison to be overbearing, you know, telling him that he can't play notes in between each phrase in Hey Jude and, you know, all, all the other examples that we've heard over the years. Um, so I think he's kind of he's, he's, he's trying to hold back that element of his personality um, and let wings be a bit more loose and free. But at mm. the same time, he can't hold back and control that element of his personality because it's part of who he is. It's part of his DNA and his and his artistic DNA. So. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why you end up like like you say, with, with this kind of uh, dichotomy of, of um, uh, control versus looseness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be such a theme throughout, you know, one of one of the many themes, I should say, throughout the book. There's this this duality of, of his personality. And um, oh, and, and just one more thing. Did you guys talk about Linda? A little bit. Oh. OK, because I was just going to say another thing that fascinated me was the her artistic growth. That, that you really uh, talk about, even just in this short period um, through, you know, through the book. I mean, how would you describe it, you know, just in this, in these few years that you chronicle, you know, how would you, how would you characterize it um, as, you know, how she, she grew as a, you know, a keyboard player and even as a songwriter? Hmm. Um as a songwriter, I, th- I guess she went from, you know, zero to Oriental Nightfish in the course of this book. Yeah. Um, and, uh, well, and uh, the couple of things they did in Paris after the, the band on the run sessions were over. Um, she, okay, the fact that by the time this book is over, she's got maybe four songs um, is something, you know. Um, and as a keyboard player, uh, you know, excuse me, it was a slow development, but, you know, by the end, um, I think she, I think she found her instrument in the mini Moog, um, you know, those, those Moog lines on uh, Band on the Run are her, yeah. and, uh, and she was very protective of them when they went to talk to Tony Visconti about orchestrations and he proposed an idea for the intro of one of the songs where she had a synthesizer line she said you're not covering my synthesizer line <laughs> yes like, yeah that was a great moment <laughs> <laughs> so um so you know she did develop um you know it, it, i don't think it's a startling amount of development but it's definitely something and and you know it it shows that she did work hard at it and she uh did take it seriously and i mean you, you have to you're being thrown out there and on stage yeah by your husband uh, <laughs> you know you have to do that. and and uh and i think she did and uh you know and also I, I was just watching uh one hand clapping today and there are, you know you see her playing the synth lines and uh you know going back to what we were talking about before you see jimmy mcculloch play note for note henry's solo in my love Hmm. Um, so yeah i think i think she came along i think i think her you know her greatest value in this part of the story is not so much as uh, a musician who developed as uh you know 
support for Paul in a way, yeah. you know, to be the, the and and he he considers this part of songwriting collaboration to have someone there who you trust that you can say a few lines to and they'll tell you whether they're good or not or maybe come up with a suggestion that was um linda's role in in some of their song their collaborative songwriting you know we have her own songwriting and we have the collaborative songwriting which is very difficult to sort of pick apart what linda's contributions were um but um yeah, I, I think Linda, I think I said it before, she she emerges as a really interesting character in this book. And I think we see a little bit more of her personality here than in any of the other books I've read. Yes. Hmm. I agree. Yeah, one hmm. of the one of the reviews of the book actually said it was the most balanced portrait of Linda that they'd ever read. So hmm. that was that was really flattering to read, you know, because we feel like we did we did represent Linda fairly and and you know and looking forward to this film that they're working on at the moment the man on the run film you know that's they said that's going to be an exploration of Paul and Linda's love story you know and I and I feel like our book it does a lot of that really you know it looks at their relationship and how their relationship affected his music um it affected his uh, business interests it affected every aspect of his life you know um, you know, L Linda really, I, I think, is one of the heroes of this book, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think, as I said, I think other people have, have said something similar after they've read the book, that, you know, they were surprised just how brilliant they that Linda, you know, came across in the book and how brilliantly, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I, I find that, you know, really encouraging to hear when people say things like that. Um, because I think she has had a bum rap over the years, and you know, we we I think we tell the story fairly and, and in a balanced way. You know, there's one one thing else I should mention. We to bring it back to the very beginning of the conversation where we were talking about um, getting Paul to cooperate with us. I mean, we 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 did try. Obviously, we wrote letters, you know, through all of his various addresses and managers and publicists. Uh, and one of the things that we said in the letter is we want to show Linda fairly. We want to show her contribution. We want to show, you know, what, what she meant in all of this. And I think that, I think that uh, he cannot look at the book and say, yeah, they didn't do what they said. We did what we said. Hmm. Absolutely. Well, right. and that's, that's one of the many strengths of this book is I think you present balanced portraits of Paul and Linda. Um, and, and that's I, what I loved about this book. I mean, you really, as I said at the beginning, you, you presented three-dimensional portraits of, of them. And, and that's one of the things, one of the many things uh, I <laughs> loved about this book. Um, I, I really, I, I know I speak for everybody here. I, I can't not thank you enough for, for being on the show. And, uh, and I always ask this, I think some, I forget if it was a, a interviewer or a professor or somebody asked this of me years ago. So I always ask this uh, of authors, which is what do you want people to readers to walk away with after reading your book? What, what do you want to leave them with afterwards? I think, yeah. 
fun, fun. It's interesting. Yeah. Again, I've had this, I've had this conversation a couple of times, so I don't want to go over the same territory, but um, when we, when we started work on the book, I um, had lunch with Mark Lewiston and uh, because he, he lives not far, far away from me. He's a good friend of Alan's. And it was the first time I'd ever met Mark. And he said to me, uh, he said, you know, my one question for you is, you know, what, what am I going to learn about Paul McCartney as a man from this book? And that always really stuck with me when we were writing it. And it's something that I give Alan a really hard time about, um, <laughs> which is because and, and, and people will, people will say, you know, if you don't sit down with Paul McCartney to work on this book, how can you understand him? How can you understand how what makes him tick? you know, emotionally and artistically. But I, I think that that's what we've managed to achieve with our book is to really, uh, you know, give a portrait of all the different sides of Paul McCartney. Um, and, and really, I think, you know, anybody who picks up our book and puts it down and, and they haven't learned anything about Paul, then I'm happy to give them their money back, really. <laughs> <laughs> Ellen, how about you? Yeah, what I want people to come away with really is a sense of how he did what he did, um, why his best stuff is so great, how it works, what its influences were, how he put it together uh, in the studio, how, um, you know, why, why, and, and, and also not even just the stuff that you thought was his great stuff coming into the book. I want readers to find things in the book that they didn't realize, you know, were tracks worth listening to necessarily, you know, because I, I mean, that happened for me writing it. I'm hoping it happens for people reading it. Yeah, uh, sure did. It did. I, I, yeah. I've come up with a, a whole bunch of, you know, absolute favorites of his from this period that I hadn't thought twice about before. Um, believe it or not, backseat of, of my car, which is now one of my favorite things from this period. I, I just thought it was, you know, it's an okay song, but, you know, really looking closely at it and taking it apart and putting it back together and, you know, writing the details really left me absolutely loving that song and Little Lamb Dragonfly and, 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 and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, even... Even the Wildlife album, which was one of my least favorite Paul McCartney albums, um, I now have, I feel, a, a much greater appreciation for now that I know everything that went into it, including the circumstances leading to it. You know, the fact that they had like two days of rehearsal and then went into the studio and, you know, and it's one, on one hand, you can say, well, okay, Mumbo is, you know, is presented as live in the studio. It's not really live in the studio. All you need to do is listen to how many instruments you're hearing. There aren't that many wings players. And, but the way they did it, I think was brilliant, you know? And, uh, and so I, I now even have an appreciation for wildlife that I didn't have before. So I'm hoping readers, come away with that same experience in a way, you know, looking at, at this period of Paul's life, song by song, we've done everything that he did and come away with uh, a, a few favorites that they didn't know would be their favorites. Uh, I just want to interject that that happened to me with wildlife with uh, the song, you know, Dear Friend, which I always understood and knew about, but I, I think I got an even bigger appreciation of Dear Friend from just the passages that I read in your book, and with the song "Tomorrow," uh, I, you know, I didn't know. Maybe many people do already. I didn't realize it had its roots as far back as May '69, 
just before the Abbey Road sessions, and that perhaps one of the reasons maybe it wasn't done or completed might be it was close. Is kind of close to "Don't Let Me Down" in a way. I did never, I never drew that, you know, comparison. I never thought about that. How similar that was. Absolutely. Mm. This this book will definitely make you rethink songs you thought you knew. Um, you have to go out and get this book if you don't have it already. This is an absolutely necessary addition to your library. Um, Alan, Adrian, thank you so much for being on this, on our show. And uh, please come back uh, when uh, you have volume two out. And uh, do you, do you have four. any uh, or or yeah, three, four, all? Of them. <laughs> um, do you have any any idea when volume uh, two might be? I mean, just a general idea. I know you don't well, want to commit to a specific. Will it be before tune in the next one? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, um, Everything will be before late, tune in. <laughs> probably late 2024. And uh, yeah, as far as we can tell. Great. We, we hope. <laughs> well, well. Speaking as two guys right now who are completely bogged down in volume two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's such a big. Uh, we're covering a slightly longer period in volume two. It goes at uh, it goes from seventy four, from the you know the the McGear sessions all the way to nineteen eighty. We're not going to tell you when in nineteen eighty, but in nineteen eighty. So it's a slightly longer period we're covering, and there's a lot that's going on during that time as well. You know, you've got you've got you know two more, or well, I suppose technically three more um, iterations of Wings during that time. Uh, yeah. You know, record recording in just about every place around the world, you know, Virgin Islands, New Orleans, LA, you know, uh, they're all over the place. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's um, it promises to be, you know, just as good, if not better than volume one. I don't know. I mean, there's just so much good stuff. There's so much good stuff. And that'll take you till when the end of the seventies or. Sometime. Yeah. Yeah. 80. We're not going to tell you when in 80. He's not going to leave us in suspense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, think, I know. I think I know. <laughs> yep. Well, I, I just, I, we can't wait. And, uh, and we'd love you to come back and, and talk about volume two. And I promise I won't have power outages the next time. <laughs> I'll talk to Commonwealth Edison and make sure. Uh, but, uh, but thank you so much. Um, why don't you tell us where uh, where you can be found online, where uh, where you can be reached, Alan? Why don't uh, Why don't you go first? Um, well, I have a couple of Facebook pages: Alan Cozen and Alan Cozen Remixed. We have a Facebook page for McCartney Legacy, um, and that's <clears throat> probably the easiest way to get to me. Mm-hmm. Great, great. And Adrian, how about you? Yeah, all of our contact information is on our website, which is. Uh, the McCartneyLegacy.com or just McCartneyLegacy.com uh, and you'll find links to our Twitter and Facebook on there as well. Um, we, we post, you know, little updates uh, regularly on Twitter and Facebook uh, together with some little tidbits of uh, research now and again, um, you know, things that we found for the first book uh, that we, we might not have used or, you know, just little things that were coming across. Uh, during the making of the second book that people might find interesting. 
Fantastic. And I will post those links in the description um, of this video. So, uh, so make sure everybody checks that out. Um, okay, uh, let's go around and just briefly uh, let uh, people know what we're up to. So um, before we do that, let me just briefly mention we are on Facebook, uh, Talk More Talk. Um, and uh, so please uh, like us on there. We, of course, are right here on YouTube, please uh, subscribe to our channel and uh, give us a thumbs up. Uh, you can also email us at talkmoresolotalk at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on virtually any podcasting platform you can find. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter, uh, Talk More Talk, number one, uh, just the number one. And uh, you can find us on our, on our website at talkmoretalk.com. Um, so, uh, and I don't have uh, too much going on. If you're watching this uh, today, Monday, uh, February 6th, on Tuesday the 7th, I will be uh, joining our good friend Ken Womack for Tuesday Night Record Club. Uh, we're going to be talking about Sly and the Family Stones. There's a riot going on, uh, which mm. I'm really looking forward to. Uh, going to be really getting uh, deep into the album, talking about it. Uh, and uh, so I will post the link to where you can sign up for free uh, to join us for the discussion um, on my Facebook page and the Talk More Talk uh, page as well. So hope to see you there. So, Joe, what's uh, what's all going on with you? Well, my channel on YouTube is Mean Mr. Mayo, and uh, we're going to have some more Fab Gap shows in February uh, dealing with solo Beatles stuff, Beatles stuff. It's also going to be a special 90th birthday show for Yoko. It's going to be 90 on, on the 18th. So uh, please check that out. And also uh, my movie channel. If anybody here is interested in movies, particularly horror, science fiction, but everything, my new channel name is Dial M for Mayo. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> That's took me a while. It took me 12 times to find one that I liked. And, and I, you're I like sure that. this is it, right? You're sure that no, sure. I like this one. I like this one a lot. <laughs> I think I'll stick with it. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Tom, how about you? Well, uh, February is looking to be a busy month for us at the Two Legs. Uh, the, the, the queen herself is his bracelet with her uh, presence <laughs> on a very special episode dealing with uh, we'll hide this here. The the uh, missing 80 single. We won't uh, give away the uh, the actual song, but we talk about you know why uh, it, it theories as to why it wasn't released, what we thought about it, and uh, you know what had been a hit. Um, and then uh, after that, we we got Marilyn Macaro on uh, talking about the uh, the the Paul Yoko relationship throughout the years. And then we're going to have uh, Glenn Greenberg on as well talking about his new bookazine, uh, the trivia. Uh, or the trivia of the trivia book of the Beatles. Sorry, <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah. So it's going to be a, a fun-packed uh, month uh, for us over at Two Legs. Uh, so check us out. Uh, two Legs, uh, Two Legs podcast uh, on our YouTube channel. Email us at Two Legs Podcast at gmail.com if you want to suggest any, give us any show ideas. But other than that, you know, we're just uh, having a lot of fun talking about good old Polly. There you go. Always a good time. Ken, what's going on with you? Uh, well, first of all, for those of you, if if um, if you can't make it to see uh, Kit and Ken tomorrow night, Danny Lane is actually performing in New York City at City Winery. So I just want all of you to know that since this is going up on the 6th, you still have time to see Danny Lane in concert. 
um, on my YouTube channel. I just said Tom on and yeah, we did a Fab much. Five show. Yep. And a Fab Five show is when I asked my guests to name five albums, one Beatles, one from each solo Beatle, that are the albums that they're listening to at the moment, their go-to albums. And so Tom gave his list. And I've done that already with Joe. Kit, you're holding out on yep. me. I know. <laughs> I will do it soon, I promise. <laughs> She's on a contract have... with uh, someone else, so she can't really do a contract with you because <laughs> oh, you know, that, that'll, that'll interfere with, uh, you know. But that, but that's part of the McCartney legacy. <laughs> I'm also going to have Glenn Greenberg on Wednesday, I think. No, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yes. And uh, <laughs> so we'll be doing an interview about his bookazine of Beatles trivia on my other podcast show, Things We Said Today with Alan and Darren DeVivo. We're recording a show right after this because <laughs> Alan is just a tireless person. <laughs> Works around the clock, 24 hours. If it's not his book, it's the podcast shows. That's it. And uh, we're doing a show on your favorite uh, Beatle covers, cover versions mm. of Beatle songs. So nice. that'll be coming out probably tomorrow. And uh, what else? My website, KenMichaelsRadio.com. Uh, oh, actually, on things we said today, we're also going to be doing a Yoko tribute show. That's going to be next week with several special guests on that. And uh, my website, KenMichaelsRadio.com, Beatles Trivia every single week, where you can win the McCartney Legacy. Okay, this mm. trivia every week starts every Monday, runs through Sunday. I pick a winner by Sunday night or Monday. I haven't gotten to do it yet, <laughs> but I will have one up tonight anyway. But uh, there's all different types of Beatle games and trivia questions on my trivia page. So be sure to check that out. And um, I think that's everything. All right. Everybody's always busy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> never a dull moment. So, uh, so Adrian, Alan, thank you again for being on the show. I know we could have easily gone another hour or more to asking you so many questions about this incredible book. Again, The McCartney Legacy, Volume 1. Run, Do Not Walk. To pick this uh, this book up it is just incredible thank you all so from this zoo gang to you <laughs> thank you so much and we'll see you next time bye-bye <laughs> Let's <laughs> go.